Hey there, everybody. Welcome to uh, a long overdue office hours. I apologize for uh, being a couple minutes late here tonight. Uh, had some unexpected uh, <clears throat> household things arise here this evening. But uh, we are here now. Thanks for joining me. Um, it has been forever since I've done an open Q&A session, so I wanted to do that. Um, but... Um, Anyway, so, uh, thanks for, thanks for joining me. And, uh, I want to just for those of you who are new, I, I, most of the names here I recognize, but in case there is anybody new, I just wanted to make sure that you know, um, your box there that's labeled questions. If you just, if you have a question or a comment that you want to make, you can just type it in there and put enter and I'll get it up on my screen right away. Um, I have a bunch of questions that were sent in by email or posted on uh, Twitter or Facebook, and I am going to go through, uh, some of those. Um, Yana, you're here. Yana, you were an Iron Man. Do you ever sleep? Holy cow. Um, uh, Yana, of course, is, uh, uh, over in Europe and is, uh, six hours ahead of us. So, um, but hey, Yana, at least soon you'll, uh, you'll, you'll be only five hours ahead of us because you'll get daily savings before too long. <laughs> anyway, um, so, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. How I'm going to do this is I'm going to kind of go back and forth. I'm going to alternate. Um, what, I'm going to start with one question that was sent in to me and then I will alternate with a question, uh, from you guys here in the room. So please do feel free to post stuff. I see a couple people here, uh, present who have submitted some of the questions that I have, uh, ready to post and talk about, including the first one actually. Yana is, uh, is, is from your, from you. So go ahead and type them into the, um, questions box. One thing I will recommend, uh, shorter is slightly better. I read slowly. So, uh, if you type a really, really long question, it'll take me forever to read it through, uh, and we'll slow down the process. So if, if brevity is good, uh, in your questions in the question box, if that's possible. So let me start, uh, while you guys are thinking and typing, let me start with, uh, Yana's first, uh, first question here. Yana's first question, which is an excellent question. You've said many times that the Rohirrim are like the Anglo-Saxons, despite Tolkien saying the contrary many times. Now, I do not necessarily disagree, however, I have a slightly different view. Just like we all accept that the people in the Lord of the Rings aren't actually speaking English but Westron, and English is used to represent the language, why couldn't Anglo-Saxon be the representative of Rohirric? Um, it is. It is. Yes. Um, uh, There are two issues here. There are two things that I'd want to separate here. One is the question of the language spoken. Is the language Rohirric spoken by the the Rohirrim? Is that language Anglo-Saxon? And second, um, are the Rohirrim themselves essentially Anglo-Saxons? Those are two questions which sometimes get kind of confused when when talked about together, but I think that there's an important distinction there. Um, And the distinction is important exactly because Tolkien was deliberately modeling um so there are a couple of things I want to I want to talk about here. First, let me talk about the language thing that Yana talks about. He was deliberately modeling their language on Anglo-Saxon Yana for exactly the reason that you said. Um Tolkien recognizes and he talks about this in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings. He recognizes that uh nobody in Middle-earth speaks English. English is not a language spoken anywhere. We in, through the experience of reading the books, can forget about this. Um, but Tolkien wants to remind us that this entire book is a translation. Okay, it's a translation into English from Westron, which is not English. But what he does do is he does, of course, the philological history of Westron in, in Middle-earth. And so when he gives 
uh, translations of other languages that are not Westron, but which are related to Westron in various, in, in various historical ways. He chooses uh, particular language, you know, so, so he starts off with saying, okay, Westron, I've, I, I've used, I've chosen to use modern English to translate Westron. So in order to try to maintain the sense of the interconnectivity of the languages. So the fact, for instance, that the language of the Rohirrim, um, has uh, connections to Westron, that the language that the hobbits speak in the Shire is philologically connected with the language that the Rohirrim speak. Um, he wants that to be able to be reflected, to be audible to us as readers, um, even though these two languages, Rohirric and Westron, are not English and not even very much like English, but he wants the, 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 the relationship to be parallel. So, having chosen West, having chosen uh, modern English uh, to translate Westron, he chooses Anglo-Saxon to represent, not to be, but to represent Rohirric. So he's translating again, he's translating Rohirric, into Anglo-Saxon, because that's the closest parallel that will help us to understand the philological links between the language of the Rohirrim and the language of the Shire. You see how that works? This is also why, by the way, if you read Appendix A in the History of Gondor, and you see those those northern peoples that the that the uh, the people of Gondor had um, uh, connections with, like uh, Vidugavia and. Uh, uh, those 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 people there's the story in in uh, um in appendix a of the 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 prince of gondor who went and married one of the northern women and then there was the rebellion against his son and this led to the kin strife in gondor if you remember that story from the appendix um those people those people um those northerners with whom the uh the the people of gondor were making alliances and then afterwards marriages um, are connected with the Rohirrim. They're not identical with the Rohirrim, but they're related to the Rohirrim. So their names and language, names like Vidugavia, are Gothic languages, uh, are Gothic names. They're, they're names from the Gothic language, and all of those names up there are Gothic languages. Because again, he was arguing um, that the relationship between the languages of those people <clears throat> and the language of the Rohirrim are connected to each other in a similar way to the way that Gothic and Anglo-Saxon were connected to each other. So again, that's why he chooses to use Gothic there. So in part, this is just, um, uh, uh, in part, this is just, uh, uh, Tolkien, um, he's sort of having fun with philology, uh, and, wanting to be as accurate as possible in the parallels that he's connecting, even though he's consistently translating. So, Yana, you're absolutely right um, that that is how he thought about the language. But um, that's why the language that the Rohirric that we get, we we, ha- we hear the Rohirric speaking in The Lord of the Rings is Anglo-Saxon, because it's being translated into Anglo-Saxon. Um, however, that is... Not, I think, the only reason that Tolkien has said, oh no, the Rohirrim, they're not Anglo-Saxons. See, that's a different question. Um, because that's a question of the representation of culture. Uh, that is not just a question of the language, because he was using Anglo-Saxon unashamedly, uh, for their language. Um, with the, with the recognition that that's not their actual language. Um, but the problem is when people say, you know, oh, I just love Rohan. You know, I I love the depiction of Rohan and Meduseld and and everything else. Is this what you think the Anglo-Saxons were really like? And to that kind of question, Tolkien would always answer, Oh, no, 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 they're like them, but uh, but they're totally they're, they're, there's there's no identity. You know, there's I'm not I'm not at all trying to say that you know 
that they're they're just like the Anglo-Saxons. But the reason that he said that, um, I believe, my personal belief on this question is that Tolkien was kind of hedging. Um, not that he was being dishonest. That would be a that would be a very a very uh, uh, strong claim to make, and I don't make it. But Tolkien was a very careful scholar, and uh, if he were to have said, "Yeah, yeah," um, the Rohirrim, I've I've based the Rohirrim cult- culture directly on a, on the Anglo-Saxons. They basically are Anglo-Saxons. Had he said that? Had he, had he, had he, had he said that was true, he would have been making, in his own mind, in his own ears, he would have been making a huge scholarly claim. Because there's so much about Anglo-Saxon culture, about Anglo-Saxon, uh, 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 civilization and practices, which aren't known, which are just, uh, you know, sort of speculated about and argued about fiercely among scholars. Um, his own colleagues, you know, I think to some extent he's kind of looking out the corner of his eye at his own colleagues when he's answering that question, because he knows if he's like, oh yeah, the Anglo-Saxons were just like this, that his colleagues are going to be like, dude, what are you talking about? How could you say that? You do not have enough evidence uh, to support that. But the thing is, I believe that Tolkien mostly believed that. One of the things that is so awesome about Tolkien, when you study Tolkien's scholarship, when you study... Um, the work that he did on language, the work that he did on, uh, in the literature that he studied, like Beowulf, um, what you often find is Tolkien actually did not publish all that much scholarly work during his lifetime. Um, it was one of the things that his colleagues kind of scratched their heads about. Um, you know, they're like, why isn't Tolkien published the great book, you know, on Germanic philology? Um, What's he doing with himself? And then he up and publishes this thousand-page fantasy novel, and they're like, oh, that's what he's been doing with himself, right? As if that were mere frivolity, right? Why weren't you working on serious academic work and, 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 and instead of writing kiddie books like this? But the thing is, in one sense, it is a serious academic book. Um, that when you go, and this, and, uh, Tom Shippey is, is the greatest a person talking about this, Michael Drought, also wonderful on these points, because they are really Anglo-Saxonists, and what they can do is they can show you the moments in Tolkien, the moments in The Lord of the Rings, where in one particular, and sometimes it's a very simple thing, like the way that they march into battle, or a particular line that is delivered by one of the, uh, by one of the Rohirrim, um, which if you know the Anglo-Saxon texts that Tolkien worked with, worked with, you can know, you can see that um, that Tolkien is basically doing interpretation. A, a famous example, which Tom Shippey has pointed to a bunch of times, um, you may remember the difficult place that Hama, the door warden, finds himself in um, when he's confronted by Gandalf and Aragorn, and Gandalf, in particular the issue of Gandalf um, keeping his staff. And he says... Uh, you know, when in doubt, a, you know, a man of worth will, will, would, oh, man, the line just left me. I had it in my head a second ago. Um, a man of worth will trust to his own. If somebody can find that quote and give it to me, I don't want to butcher it. I'm totally blanking on it. Um, but, uh, but anyway, you remember the passage where the, the, the line where he decides, okay, I've got to make up my mind. So I'm going to say, I believe, he says, I, you know, I believe that you are men of worth, uh, and that you mean no ill here. I'm going to let you keep your staff. The line that Hama delivers is almost a translation. It's more of a paraphrase, but it's almost a translation of a contested line in Beowulf. Um, the line that the um, 
that the, the Coast Guard gives when the Coast Guard sees Beowulf and his men arrive. And here's this, what looks like a small invasion, right? Here's, here's a hero from a, from a, from a strange land and his heavily armored comrades, uh, and they've landed on our island or, or on our, on our shores. And I'm the Coast Guard who's supposed to be warning the king if what looks like a hostile force is arriving. This could be the beginning of a hostile force. But instead he says, okay, I'm going to take you to see Hrothgar. And he delivers this line where he says, um, this line, which is the exact meaning of which is contested. Tolkien gives a near translation of that line and puts it in Hama's mouth. And in that scene, what he is doing, if you know Beowulf, that scene amounts to, indirectly, an interpretation of that passage of Beowulf. An interpretation which Tolkien published nowhere in any scholarly publication. But it's there. Um, and there are a lot of places like that. So, but again... It's speculative. Whenever he was, whenever, you know, he had a theory, he had an idea that he wanted to work out, that he wanted to, to try, that he wanted to float out there. But it was too speculative to publish, uh, in a scholar, in the scholarly arena. He put it in his fiction. And he did this in lots of places. You know, we, we, we see this happening, um, in many different ways. Um, yet in doubt, a man of worth will trust his own wisdom. Thank you, Tom, uh, and Kevin. Um, uh, th- that's, I, I had some of that line, but it was, it was evading me. I appreciate your assistance. Um, so, um, anyway, I, I, I do think that, uh, therefore, to go back to, Yana, your original point, um, the reason that I say the Rohirrim are like the Anglo-Saxons, despite Tolkien saying the contrary, is that Tolkien was, in public, I believe, being overcautious about this. Um, it's clear that he is modeling them after the Anglo-Saxons, but he doesn't want to draw the equal sign himself, because in doing so, he, as a scholar of Anglo-Saxon, would have therefore been making hard claims, which he is not prepared to make, he doesn't want to make. Um, so he didn't do it. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll draw it. I'll draw the equal sign because <laughs> I'm not shy about it. Uh, and I, and, and, and also I'm, you know, much less scrupulous, uh, a scholar than he is. Uh, and it's not my speculations anyway. So it's easier for me to say. Does that make sense? I, mean, I hope that that doesn't sound, uh, uh, too, um, disrespectful. I mean, I, I, I trust you could see what I mean, uh, by this, but that, that's my, uh, doubtless unnecessarily, uh, long, um, uh, answer, <laughs> Yana, to your question. But it brings up a really interesting point, and it's something, um, I, you know, I've been delighted, uh, at Mythgard in our MA program. We've had Tom Shippey teaching. He team taught a class with me this past summer where he was doing a bunch of, uh, Tolkien's Anglo Saxon writings, not, uh, The Lord of the Rings, but uh, stuff like Beorknoth, um, Bjornhelmsson, the, 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 drama that he wrote, um, short drama that he wrote based on the Battle of Malden, um, you know, and, and Shippy was sort of walking us through that and, and, uh, and then, you know, and now Shippy's teaching his philology course. Whenever I hear Shippy talk about these things, I just sort of notice this stuff more and more, um, how persistently, um, how intricately connected in Tolkien's mind, his, his intellectual interests, his scholarly interests and his creative stuff is, um, there's really, it's not a question of him including like a, some scholarly Easter eggs or like inside jokes that other medievalists would get or something like that. Um, there's really a way in which a lot of what he writes, a lot of not only the story that he writes, but the, uh, but the world that he creates really has grown out of, um, the, his, his intellectual, his scholarly work, that that work has been, 
Uh, the the metaphor is not going to be a good one, but it's it, it's like the soil out of which those stories grow to some extent. Um, but uh, anyway, um, there's uh, there's certainly a lot more that can be said about that. Um, but uh, anyway, I will. Uh, I think I think I've probably spent long enough talking about that. Um, anyway, uh, let me um, let me see now. Okay, um, you guys. I'm scanning through your your comments and questions here. Um, okay. Carissa, hmm. that is an excellent question. Um, and I don't know, Carissa. Carissa says, um, why does the ring actually disappear when Tom Bombadil flips it in the air? You'll remember the analogy that the narrator makes when Frodo takes the ring back. Um, he looks at it with suspicion as one who has lent a trinket to a juggler, right? Um, because, you know, somebody who's engaged in sleight of hand, you know, have they palmed your ring and given you a fake, right? That's always possible. Uh, if you give a trinket to a juggler, you can't be a hundred percent sure that something hasn't been switched and that either, you're being robbed, or even in the best case, a joke is being played on you, right, by somebody who's obviously being flippant, quite possibly at your expense. That, anyway, is the sort of the attitude, the tone of the scene that the narrator prompts us to see. And that certainly seems to be Tom's attitude, not as a thief, uh, nor even as a mean-spirited practical joker, um, but he makes light of a thing, again, quoting the narrator here, makes light of a thing which which even Gandalf considers desperately important. Tom Bombadil doesn't take the ring seriously. Um, and what he seems to do with it seems to be something... I mean, is it sleight of hand? Is there magic involved? Um, I, I'm not sure what in what proportion those two things are the case, but... Tom Bombadil does it. He does stop short of like reaching out and pulling the ring from behind Frodo's ear, but it's kind of like that, right? That's what he's doing. He's, you know, he, he laughs and he looks through it, right? And there's that wonderful image of the ring with Tom's blue eye looking through it, right? And then, you know, he flips the ring, uh, up in the air and it disappears and then he hands it to Frodo. And again, I, that I, the description of it sounds to me like sleight of hand. I am not really convinced. Maybe there is something which hobbits would call magic uh, going on there, but I'm inclined to think not. I'm inclined to think that it's just sleight of hand, that he's just literally playing with the ring at that point, in his flipping of it around and uh, and uh, and and handing it back to Frodo. Um, I There's clearly a play, however, um, that is, in the construction of the thing, there's an obvious irony, right? He's just put the ring on his finger, and Tom Bombadil has not disappeared. Instead, Tom Bombadil makes the ring disappear, right? And that's kind of lovely, right? Um, the ring does not have power over him. Uh, he has a kind of power over it. You'll remember Gandalf resists that in the Council of Elrond. <clears throat> he seems to have a power even over the ring. And Gandalf says, no, I'll say the ring has no power over him. Right. Um, and this is one reason why I'm not at all convinced that he's actually, by some sort of magical power, <clears throat> causing the ring even very temporarily to disappear. But he is making light over it, light of it. So in that sense, that indirect sense, I would almost say that he has a power over the ring. That is, his response to the ring is about as opposite 
to, you know, ring-induced monologue as anybody has. Um, you know, there are times when people, you know, in the Two Towers class, we were looking at Faramir and Faramir's reaction to the ring. And a point I was making at the time was the speech that Faramir gives um, when he, <clears throat> when he's in the, when he does his, uh, you know, not if I, not if I found it by the highway, would I, would I take it line. Um, you know, the speech that he goes on to give about how, you know, he, he would not see Minas Tirith, uh, you know, feared, but, you know, he, he, he would see her flowering again. That, that whole speech, um, is like, you put that next to Boromir's speech, you know, when he's falling under the power of the ring in the end and about to seize, to try, attempt to seize it from Frodo. Um, and it's, 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 you know, I said at the time it's almost opposite of a ring induced monologue. It's, Focusing on not on pride and elevating himself, um, but on humility. Tom Bombadil, however, demonstrates what I think is the most pure opposite pole of the ring. Whatever anybody, whatever reaction anybody else has to it, at least everybody else thinks it's deadly serious, right? Tom Bombadil laughs at the ring. Nobody laughs at the ring of power. Tom Bombadil laughs at the ring of power, though. Um, and, Carissa, that's how I understand that scene. Um, is that it's, he's, he's literally like, hey, I'm taking like probably the single most powerful artifact in the world, uh, at least that's still around that we know of, Silmarils being lost, and I'm just gonna like, again, I'm gonna like pull it out of your ear, you know, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna do little sleight of hand parlor tricks with it. I'm gonna use it as a prop, um, to play like a, a funny little practical joke. I mean, that's, uh, that, that is the absolute opposite pole of, you know, of Boromir, of Gollum, of, uh, Denethor even, of Saruman, of all of those who really fall into it. Um, so, uh, anyway, I, I, I think that that's, that's how I would understand Tom Bombadil in that scene. Though again, there is certainly, there is certainly at least a symbolic significance. I think that, that element of the scene, that is the way in which Tom's response to the ring is so diametrically opposed to, to so to most everybody else's. Um, even Goadriel's, I mean, get, compare Goadriel's response to the ring with Tom Bobadil's, right? Uh, anyway, um, uh, the thing that really to me emphasizes that is that, is that disappearing, Carissa, which again, I, I suspect to be mundane disappearance, but still, um, He's not disappeared. Coming on the heels as it does of his very noteworthy non-disappearance himself, it seems pretty conspicuous. Um, and I, that I take to be his, uh, uh, th- so if there's a sort of a point that Tolkien is establishing about Tom Bombadil and his relationship with the ring, that I would take to be it. Yes, Dime, I am totally recording. Thank you very much for reminding me. Everybody's going to be reminding me now after my slip-up uh, of last week. Everyone's going to be reminding me for months. And I need it, so that's fine. I appreciate it. Um, anyway, so Carissa, that's my answer to that. Um, I will come back to some... Let me... um. If I could just request, because there are, there are a whole bunch of comments and things that people are making, which is great. Um, but if you could, if you have a new question that you would like me to consider, write the word topic at the beginning, like topic colon, and then write your thing. That way, when I scan through looking for new topics uh, to hit on, it's a little easier for me to do. Um, so good. So okay, let's um, let's go. Uh, let's go to the next one of my emailed questions here. This is a great question from Michael Lucero. Um, whose name I mispronounced last time. Sorry, Michael. Uh, during the Two Towers class. 
What exactly does Gandalf mean when he says, I am Gandalf the White, but black is mightier still? I mean, the most literal and directly relevant meaning is that Sauron is probably more powerful than he is. But why do you think he phrases it in such generic, almost universal terms? It almost seems like he's saying that evil, symbolized by the color black, is more powerful than good. Given Tolkien's Catholic background, an idea like that surprises me a lot. What do you think? Or am I reading way too much into the line? That phrasing has always bothered me a little, but I've never known what to make of it. It's a great observation, Michael, because I agree. It's striking, right? Um, he doesn't just say, you know, because remember, you remember the context of this passage. The context of this passage is, you know, Aragorn has, you know, that, you know, the, 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 the Dark Lord has nine, but we have one mightier than they, you know, the White Rider. This is, you know, he says that of Gandalf, you know, later on, he talks, you know, he, he says, he's, he, he's been, Aragorn is observing at the end of their encounter here at the beginning, Aragorn is observing um, you've changed Gandalf. I can see that Gandalf 2.0 is a significant upgrade from Gandalf 1.0, right? Um, you have returned from death, uh, and he's saying, like, Gandalf, I get the fact that you're different now, that you are more powerful now than you were. Um, you shall be our leader. Now, they always submitted to Gandalf, but Aragorn is basically recognizing, um, we have a, we should be having a different relationship with you now than, you know, before you died and were resurrected or reincarnated. So, um, Aragorn seems to be, you know, there, there are a couple things that Aragorn says, uh, to recognize that. And, um, Gandalf is responding to that. I am Gandalf the White, but black is mightier still. Um, and, Michael, I certainly do agree with your initial reading. Um, I, I agree that the, 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 the sort of the literal sense of that line is, uh, yeah, I am more powerful. Yes, I am Gandalf the White. You are right to recognize that I've like moved up the, the food chain here a little bit in my return, but, um, Sauron is still mightier. Right. You know, don't think that don't make the mistake of thinking um, you have correctly perceived that I am more powerful upon my return. He himself openly admits this. You know, he's saying things like, indeed, none of you have any weapon that could hurt me. Right. I mean, the way that he talks is clear that he's he's clearly communicating. Um, I'm different now. I'm greater in some sense. And they get that. Aragorn, anyway, gets that. And, and so 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 he recognizes that I am Gandalf the White. You're correct. But, black is mightier still, but don't get the wrong impression. Don't think that now that I've returned uh, and am bigger and better than ever, um, don't think that this means now we can just go on a frontal assault against Mordor and I'll just take him down one-on-one, because that's, that's not going to happen. So, Michael, I, I believe that you're right, that that is the primary literal sense of the line, but I do agree with you. Um, that the terms that he uses do seem kind of conspicuous in that way. It does almost sound as if he's saying that black is mightier than white in a broad and general sense, that ev- evil is more powerful than good. Um, now, I agree also with your sort of, your inclination to reject that idea. Um, I don't think that that idea has any real, uh, standing um, in Tolkien's world. I certainly disagree that Tolkien depicts evil uh, as greater and more powerful than good, and good ultimately powerless against evil, generally speaking. Um, I think that what he is 
doing here is not just kind of calibrating Aragorn's expectations, right? Yes, I'm greater, but not that great, right? You know, be reasonable in your expectations. Not, not just that, but reminding him we are, we are agents. Gandalf is still going to be going on and doing the steward thing from here, right? Even though he's Gandalf the White now, um, this is not going to be a primary clash between white and black. This is not going to be, um, now the forces of light shall gather together and they shall drive back the darkness. That's not going to be how this story goes. And Gandalf knows that that's not how this story goes. Um, the story that they are in is that they are surrounded with darkness and that the darkness has real power and its power is greater than theirs. That's not to say that evil in general is more powerful than good in general but that the agents of evil in this struggle are indeed more powerful, collectively at least, than the agents of good, collectively, in this struggle. Um, as he's going to go on and argue, you know, in many other places, um, they don't have any chance of actually winning this battle, this war. They win the battle. They don't win the war. They have no hope of winning the war. Um, and Gandalf is very firm about that. That's what he, that's why he calls the council together after the Battle of Pelennor Field to explain this. I think it's also very interesting. You remember there's one time we almost get a clash between black and white, right? Um, that is when Gandalf and the Lord of the Ringwraiths almost meet at the Battle of Pelennor Field. Rather, they do meet each other, but then before they can throw down, Rohirrim show up, the Witch King excuses himself, and Gandalf and the Lord of the Ring Wraiths never do match up, right? Remember Gandalf's frustration. He's going around and he's enheartening the people of Minas Tirith. He, he plays, though it's an understated role, it's a very important role in the battle. Um, had it not been for Gandalf, the narrator makes it pretty clear, um, the, the men of Minas Tirith would never have been able even to resist the armies of the Nazgul. Um, but he never gets to go out into the battle. He goes out to help the sortie that one time to rescue the wounded men who are returning from Osgiliath, but he never fights. Gandalf never fights in the Battle of Pelennor Field. And he, um, you know, there, there's sort of two moments. That one when Pippin comes, right? The, 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 the Witch King has turned and gone back through the gate, uh, to go fight Theoden, and, um, Gandalf is about to ride out after him. What would have happened? had Gandalf ridden on Shadowfax out of the gate. That was his plan, right? He's going to lead the battle um, out onto the field. And Pippin grabs him and says, help, help, Denethor is going to burn Faramir alive, right? And here's Gandalf torn. And he recognizes, no, I have to, this is, this is the job I have to do, right? And he doesn't go out onto the battle. So we never get the climactic, you know, titanic struggle of black versus white on the battlefield doesn't happen. That's not the way that this battle is fought right? This battle is won, the battle is won by the small, not the great, not the two titans of white and black fighting against each other, but the titan of black getting stabbed in the back of the knee by a hobbit and then run through the face by Eowyn. Um, so it's, um, that's the story that he's in. And there's that other moment when Gandalf seems to recognize it. Um, remember after they come out of, um, the, 
uh, the silent street when they when they bring Faramir back uh, after Denethor is burning. Um, and Gandalf goes up onto the wall and he looks out over the battle and he sees everything that has happened, right? So he, with the vision that is given to him, he sees um, not just what's happening at the moment, but what has happened while they've been away. And he sighs at this moment. And, and he still doesn't go out. There's still work for him to do. You know, at the very, you know, okay, yeah, sure, the Witch King is dead now, but, you know, Gandalf would probably be helpful on the battlefield. I mean, you've got to think that uh, he could still probably do more good than harm out there, right? Um, but he doesn't go, right? Because at that moment, how I understand that is at the moment Gandalf recognizes it's not what I'm supposed to do. That's not how this story is supposed to go. Um, his job is elsewhere. His job is otherwise. That's not what he was put there to do. I am Gandalf the White, but black is mightier still. The job... Gandalf is the White, and he is powerful, but his job is not to be a juggernaut against evil. Um, his job is to be a steward. His job is to be a healer. His job is to be a counselor. His job is to be a protector. Um, and by doing these things and doing them successfully, he enables the much greater powers of good, that is, the powers of good, which are very much greater than the powers of evil, uh, th he, he, that they have their way, and they work out the story in the way that the story is supposed to be worked out. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting question, and it's a, it's a, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated thing. And Chris, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think, and I, I pause before I say this, because this is a significant statement to make. I don't think there is one single scene in the entire Lord of the Rings film trilogy that is, to me, more completely incoherent, nonsensical, and outrageous than that scene in the extended edition where the Witch King shatters Gandalf's staff. Uh, there are scenes that kind of bother me a bit. There are scenes that I disagree with very strongly. There are scenes that I would have passionately argued uh, against had I been in debate with Philip Boyens and Peter Jackson during their screenwriting process. Um, but that is the scene above all of them that I find simply unbelievable, uh, that I find utterly, utterly incoherent. For exactly that reason. So, Chris, I completely, completely agree with you. And I see Chris Stevens completely agrees with me. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Tom says, weren't the Astari also prohibited from directly opposing Sauron's strength against strength? <sighs> yes. The reason I'm hedging, Tom, is that there's a sequence thing about that. That is to say, the statements about the Astari that we find, for instance, in the essay on the Astari and Unfinished Tales, I'm very uncomfortable using those as sort of... using those to help me interpret the Lord of the Rings, or rather, using those to explain things that are said in the Lord of the Rings, because the, the, it was written after the Lord of the Rings. Um, it's based on the Lord of the Rings, not the Lord of the Rings based on it. So, that is to say... Gandalf doesn't act the way he does because the Astari were prohibited to help. It was later said that the Astari was pro were prohibited to help because that's how Gandalf acted in The Lord of the Rings, if you see the distinction that I'm making there. Um, so, and it, that might just simply be hair-splitting on my part. Um, but 
to say it, to try again to say that same thing in, in a different way. In some of his later writings, such as the essay on the Astari, one of the things that we can see Tolkien doing is trying to articulate more clearly some of the things that were going on in the book, either things that he planned in the book or things that kind of unfolded themselves as he was writing the book. And so many of these things he's sort of commenting on retroactively, retrospectively. Some things he's attempting to sort of tweak retroactively or context, recontextualize retroactively. And it's really interesting, and I really like looking at those things. Um, but... I'm always hesitant to take those as a sort of a, a, a prime, as if they were primary or previous to the Lord of the Rings, when really they're a common, more, more like a commentary on the Lord of the Rings, uh, or even in some sense, um, sort of management of reactions to the Lord of the Rings, if you see what I mean. So anyway, um, that's, um, a long answer, but a really interesting question. And 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 Michael, I just wanted to 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 thank you for your question. To say that that was a line which, for exactly the same reason, kind of confused me for a long time too. That is not not exactly what he means, because I agreed with you, Michael, that I think that what he means, the literal sense of what he means, is pretty clear. But exactly as you said, Michael. But yeah, but why does he say it that way, right? And that I agree that had always puzzled me too. Tom, that's a really good way of saying what I was just flailing around attempting to say. Um, to think of the things like the essay and the, of, of the Astari as secondary sources, um, while the Lord of the Rings is a primary source. That that I think is a is a good way to 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 think about it. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, next question. So let me go to a question from the. From the crowd here. Um, okay, let's see. Hmm. Okay. Um, okay, Christy, let me get to your question. I promised. I can promise you that I would. Question on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Okay. Christy's writing a term paper on the crux of the Green Knight's greenness. Ah, that's a great question. That includes all three popular readings, the green man, the devil, and a fairy. Um, any advice on how to approach all three readings? Um, one thing that I would say, Christy, about that question is that I'm not sure that to a medieval reader, look like... If you were to ask a medieval reader, you know, not even the writer of the of that poem, but uh, you know, a contemporary reader of the poem, okay, what is the Green Knight? Is the Green Knight a fairy, or is he the devil, or some demonic spirit, or or working, you know, transform someone transformed by the power uh, by demonic power, alternatively, or is this the Green Man of legend? I'm not sure that that question would be very meaningful, in the sense that. I think the answer might be, yeah. <laughs> that is to say, those categories were not very well defined, especially between the green man and fairies. My own understanding of the boundary between fairies and the concept of the green man is pretty fuzzy. Um, and as far as the devil and fairies, that might seem like a really hard and fast um, distinction. But you know... Not really. Um, what are fairies? Where do they come from? Where do they fit in? Um, this is an important question in the Middle Ages, because in the Middle Ages, we love for things to fit in. Uh, the, uh, people in the Middle Ages absolutely loved um, devising systems 
that held together and make sense and uh, to find a proper thing, uh, a, a proper place for everything uh, and uh, to write a really neat and orderly description of how everything all fits together. They loved that. Um, fairies were hard. They didn't know how to fit fairies. They believed in fairies. They, they by and large, thought that they did indeed exist. Um, but they didn't know what to say about them. They didn't know how they fit into the overall system. Uh, there were several theories, um, one of which was that they must, you know, one, one obviously sort of suggestive thing is that they're some kind of angelic spirit. Are they demons? They could be demons. Uh, and in fact, we can see this coming out in a bunch of medieval works. If you read, for instance, um, The Quest for the Holy Grail, uh, you can see places where elements which sound like fairy elements encounters, you know, if you're in a medieval romance, and you're a knight, and you wander into the woods, and you meet a beautiful woman who invites you to have lunch with her, uh, and then go to bed with her. And she's incredibly gorgeous in this uh, immensely rich bed. Well, you probably know where you are, <laughs> right? This is not an unknown experience for a knight in a, in a, in a, in a medieval romance. Um, you have probably encountered a member of fairy who seem not infrequently to have the desire to do this kind of thing with mortal knights. It happens in medieval romances um, for reasons which are not always obvious, but it does happen. Um, so you might know where you are. However, if you are in the quest for the Holy Grail, it is there is a 100% chance you might have exactly the same experience. You go into the woods and there's a beautiful woman and she wants to have lunch and go to bed. Um, but... Uh, you will find, as Sir Percival finds in the quest for the Holy Grail, that such a woman is always a demon who is merely trying to tempt you, uh, tempt you into vice, which will prevent you, in, 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 into sin, uh, which will prevent you from achieving the Holy Grail. Uh, and uh, Sir Percival is spared from the demonic temptation when he makes the sign of the cross over himself, at which point the demon cringes and disappears. Um, now, I say this because sometimes people want to read a passage like that as if this is, here's a lovely piece of fairy story that's being taken by, you know, the monks who wrote the quest for the Holy Grail, and it's being crudely Christianized, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and rendered into this, like, you know, much less fun black-and-white moralistic tale, that now the lovely and mysterious fairy is just a demon temptress. Um, and that's so much more boring, right? At least that's how most modern people look at the Quest for the Holy Grail. Aren't a whole lot of Quest for the Holy Grail fans among modern readers, in my experience. Um, but I actually don't think that that's the case. I think that those two situations are far more similar. That is, it's not just, I'm going to take this and I'm going to twist it. People are never quite sure who these, who and what these creatures were that they met in these stories. Um, and there was always the possibility that they were demons. This is one of the things that we see in Sir Gowan and the Green... I am eventually, Christy, coming back to Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. It's one of the things we see in Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. The, remember the reactions that Arthur and his knights have after the Green Knights... So, when the Green Knight comes in, they say, whoa, this is fairy, right? This is magic. Um... I mean, he's green. He's obviously, there's, there's, there's fairy going on here. By, and the word fairy is used not as a noun to describe a, a denizen of fairy, but the magic that they perform 
Um, there's fairy going on here. Um, it's by power of fairy that that guy is green. It's, it's obvious that that's what's happening here. And then, you know, he gets decapitated and he picks up his head and his, his decapitated head talks to them and he jumps back up on his horse and rides away. And you remember there's that really awkward moment <laughs> after that while the knights are like, uh, what just happened here? How do we react? And then Gowan and Arthur make jokes about it. Um, and everyone's, everyone laughs it off. And they seem to laugh it off in particular because Guinevere is completely freaked out about this. And, but anyway, Gowan and Arthur make a, what seems to me a very conscious effort to lighten the mood in this particular moment. But again, one of the reasons, one of the reasons of uncertainty is who was that? Why are they here? What power do they have? Um, whether it's a demon or a fairy, to what end is that? Even if it's not a demon, even if it's a fairy, and even if fairies are not demons, of which we're not 100% sure, but anyway, um, you know, why is it doing this? What's going on? Um, and that's not even made perfectly clear. At the end, okay, we find out that the power in question was the power of Morgan Le Fay, um, who was desiring to test or tempt the knights of Arthur's court, and we're told at the end that the primary reason she did what she did is that it was a very indirect uh, and overcomplicated assassination attempt. She was hoping to frighten Guinevere to death. That's what we're told explicitly. That was, uh, that was Morgan Le Fay's motivation, was that she was quite hoping that uh, she was quite hoping that uh, Guinevere would keel over dead from shock when the when the huge green dude picked up his head and it talked. Um, she was pretty freaked out, Guinevere, but she held it together, did not, in fact, keel over. Um, but, but again, even at the end of the poem, there's some uncertainty. Um, and Gowan's own responses are really, um, are really ambivalent. Um, his refusal to go back with, with Sir Bersalak to his castle, um, he's still upset at being deceived by Bersalak and his wife. He is, um, dubious, I believe, of Morgan Le Fay and what she's doing and why she did it. Um, and it's not clear to me, even at the end of the story, that King Arthur and his knights fully get the point, I think. Um, nor is it obvious that Sir Gowan gets the point fully. Um, but it's, it's, it's the question of who he is and what he is. It's part of the big question. Nobody, and then you think of the way that it's set up, right? When we meet the Green Knight again at the Green Chapel, the Green Chapel, and it's ex- spoken of in explicitly satanic terms. I mean, he, 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 Gallant is thinking of like, this looks like a devil's mound, right? I mean, this is like a, this is a place of witchcraft. Um, and the Green Knight plays that up with his whole sharpening his axe, right? And, and, uh, and looking just as, evil and sinister and demonic as he possibly can. Um, of course, the Green Chapel is also a lot like a fairy mound. I, again, I don't find those as two diametrically opposed readings of what the Green Knight is. Um, of neither one of those things would Gowan feel very confident, and he seems to have almost, in one sense, similar associations with both. Um, but anyway, so 
So, Christy, that would be one main thing that I would emphasize is not to be too one 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 piece of advice I would have for your paper um, is don't be too quick in over compartmentalizing things. I think that this that one of the points that's a crude way of saying it, but I think that one of the points of the poem is the both the doubt, the uncertainty about it, and the way in which those things go together. It he looks like has elements of the fairy other world, both for good and for bad. That is, you know, both the castle of Sir Bursalk appearing out of nowhere and, you know, the beautiful lady and the uh and the hunting and, and, and the fun um and the hospitality. This is this is also like coming into fairy. Um you know it's it's like when he goes to the castle it's like he's in one of those fun fairy tales. Uh in uh in the when he goes to the Green Chapel, it rather looks like he's in one of those other fairy tales, and there are those fairy tales which are just scary, um, and in which the fairies sound like they might <clears throat> have some things in common with demons, in fact. Um, anyway, so, uh, Christy, I don't know how very helpful that is, but again, my primary piece of advice is don't try to draw too hard and fast uh, lines between those different categories, because I don't think the medieval people had uh, very hard and fast lines between those things. Um, so I think that to try to do that would probably be a little bit misleading, or you'd end up kind of cherry-picking bits of descriptions and bits of the text which seem to point in one way versus another, when really, I think what the text is doing is really kind of combining those and, and sort of throwing that open. How do we understand this? How are we supposed to relate to this? Um, and what, you know, and here's Sir Gowan trying to figure out how to steer himself, um, how to be true to all of his virtues, how to uh, be faithful in following the laws of God and uh, and to be true to his devotion to the Virgin Mary, um, and how to do that in the face of all of these things um, when it's not obvious. You know, you're not, he's not getting obvious temptations by, uh, by, you know, wicked spirits. But then sometimes it almost looks like he is. Anyway. Okay. Um, let me move on, Arthur, to one of your questions that you posted before. At the healing of Theoden, is, it is strongly implied, but not explicitly stated, that Gandalf let Theoden in on the secret of the quest. Arthur, I've never been sure how much of it he tells him. Um, from some comments later, it seems like he doesn't tell him the whole thing. Um, but he does seem to give him the general sense of what's going on. Gandalf makes no effort to tell Denethor, who appears to have figured it out on his own. We know we like Theoden better than Denethor. What in the text telegraphs to us that Theoden, until five minutes ago clearly not up to snuff, is capable and deserving of this information, or is trusting him with this part of the hewing? Yes, that's the answer, Arthur. I, I, I think you have the answer in your last question. Um, Gandalf is not telling him this because he believes Theoden to be trustworthy, though doubtless he does believe Theoden to be trustworthy. Um, but that's not why he's telling him. He's telling him, I believe, because it is part of the cure. Fundamentally, what Theoden lacks and is given again is hope. Hope of a particular kind. Um, he, he has been kept in darkness, and Gandalf lets in the light. He urges him to open the doors of his hall and look abroad. You know, dark have been my dreams of late says Theoden. Um, it is despair, primarily, that has been chaining Theoden down. And you'll remember in the little relapse that he has uh, in the Hornburg, 
right before the dawn. That's the way that Theoden speaks again. Um, he is tempted again to that kind of despair. Um, now, I could go on about this for a long time, and Arthur, I did talk in the Two Towers class about this to some extent, but um, simply saying hope and despair, those are really big and weighted terms in Tolkien, um, and I certainly don't want to give anyone the impression that all I mean is that he, um, Gandalf is saying, you believe we're going to lose, but I'm going to tell you that really there are good odds that we're going to win. I hope and despair is not just that, right? Um, so, you know, we have a hope of which you have not ge- of, of of which you have not guessed, right? That's the kind of thing that Gandalf is 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 going to tell. Him. But again, it's not about hey, you know, actually no, we might win, Theoden. Buck up, right? Look on the bright side. No, I mean Theoden's charge from the Hornburg um, is a positive action on Theoden's part, but it's not rooted in that kind of hope. Um, it's not charge out of the Hornburg because if you do, you'll probably win. No, if you do, you'll almost certainly lose. He's planning to die. Um, he just decides he's going to die well, and he's going to go out and charge against the enemy because it's the right thing to do and the right way to die. And it turns out he wins, but that's not what he was thinking when he decided to charge, because he charged without any idea that Gandalf and reinforcements and a whole ginormous army of horns were also closing in to assist him. Um, so again, in this greater sense, um, in this in this deeper sense of the word hope, Theoden is showing hope in his charge, but again, not optimism that things are going to work out well for him. Um, yeah, but... Um, yeah, so, um, so, so, yeah, so Arthur, I do think that that's why he lets Theoden in on the secret of the quest. And Denethor, of course, hope and despair is exactly Denethor's problem, right? Or, you know, the hope isn't his problem. His, his lack of hope, um, and, and the way in which Denethor despairs is Denethor's biggest problem. But his despair, Denethor's despair, um, is in part, fueled by his knowledge. He's gained knowledge from the Palantir. He knows what's going on. He knows a lot about what's going on. He knows what Sauron's armies are like. And the stuff that he knows is accurate. It's He's not been lied to. He's not been... De- he has been deceived, but he's been lied to in that way. Um, but the problem is not... Um, the problem is not his... the conclusions that he's drawing from what he's seen. The problem is the direction that he's looking. And Gandalf is saying, stop looking inward, stop looking down, and look up. Um, you will see. And Theoden has the proper response. Remember Theoden's response to his healing? It's not so dark here, right? When he looks around, he realizes there is light, right? He doesn't actually see the little star coming through the gloom like Sam does in Mordor, but it's kind of like that. And that's what happens with, with Theoden. And so that seems to be what um, Gandalf is sort of shooting for when he... Uh, when he does this. Okay. Um, good. All right. Um, uh, Diego says, uh, would it be correct to say that Entish is an extremely descriptive language so that the names of things are actually their description or history? Hence, the length of names is proportional to the age or history of things named. Yes. That's how Treebeard describes it. Um, Diego, I wouldn't say describes, um, that it's descriptive. Exactly. And let me see if I can explain 
why I wouldn't be comfortable with that word. When you describe something, you are not generally... There's a difference between describing something and identifying a thing. That is, in a description, you are saying what it's like. You are um, making observations about it, which are often superficial observations, um, but, but you're not identifying the essence of the thing. Entish tells the story of the thing. That's how names work. Um, so there is a way in which there's a difference between a description of a thing and a telling of the thing's story. Um, and the difference is that the telling of the thing's story is at least an attempt to identify it. Um, this is a question. This is a sort of a motif that comes up at several points in The Lord of the Rings. It's a question, clearly, that Tolkien was interested in. Tom Bombadil brings it, or rather Goldberry brings it up about Tom Bombadil. When Frodo asks Goldberry, who is Tom Bombadil? She says, he is. And then expands that in saying, he is as you've seen him. Um, who are you, alone, yourself, and nameless? That is, have you thought about what that question means? Have you thought about how impossible it is to answer that question, at least in our language? What? How could you finish that sentence? The sentence that begins, Tom Bombadil is what? Right? Uh, grammatically speaking, there are two things that can follow it to complete that sentence. Either a predicate noun or a predicate adjective. Right? Either you're going to say he is this thing, right? Um, in which case, you're just putting him in a category. So like you could say, you know, he, you know, th this is, this is the, this, this is what people who read Tom Bombadil always want to do. They want to find the noun to put the finish of that sentence, right? He is Amaya, right? Is that how you finish that sentence, Goldberry? Um, but anyway, the point is, how much does that help? I mean, okay, might answer some questions to some extent, but does it answer the question? Well, not very satisfyingly. Sauron's a Maya, too. Tom Bombadil and Sauron are quite different. So how does that help? A little bit, but not much. It's a very imperfect identification. If you put an adjective in, right? Tom Bombadil is funny. Tom Bombadil is odd. Um, Tom Bombadil is a caution, as Sam says. Um, uh, again... How does this help? You're not getting any closer to identifying a thing. How do you, how can you identify a thing? Um, language, that's what language does, right? Language is, is, is all about attempting to, two people communicating are trying to point to things. I have a thought in my head and I am trying to get that thought into your head. So I use words to try to point to the things that I'm talking about are the concepts that I'm talking about um, so that you will understand what I'm saying, so that you will have the thought in your head that I have in my head. But this is the challenge of language. That's really hard to do. And there's a lot of slippage there. Um, and when you're talking about, especially when talking about living, growing things, it's really hard. Okay, there's a beech tree right outside my the living room window of my new house. Um, I've said that it's a beech tree. Well, what does that tell you? If you know what beech trees look like, you can 
get a kind of picture. At least you know what the leaves look like and might have a might be able to guess. I haven't told you anything more about the tree. Is it young? Is it old? Is it tall? Is it uh, is it, is it is it young? You know what is it? But even if I described it to you and gave you measurements and things like that, would you know it? Right? It has a story. It's been there for many years. It's seen many things. Many things have influenced its growth. It would be taller if its conditions were otherwise. It would be shorter if its conditions were otherwise. Its branches would be growing in different ways if it were standing in a different relationship to other trees. In order to understand that tree itself, to give it a name, a name which is not arbitrary, but a name which is actually connected to the thing, that is uh, something that our language generally doesn't do. Lewis Carroll made fun of this, uh, or rather had fun with this. This is one of the things he was very interested in, in his book Through the Looking Glass, which Tolkien loved and which I love and I've taught about and talked about a lot. Um, if you know that book, you may remember the chapter called um, uh, Looking Glass Insects. And um, Alice is talking to a gnat who's about the size of a chicken, and the gnat says... Um, He's talking about the names of insect, insects in Alice's world. And the uh, gnat says, of course they answer to their names. And Alice says, I've never known them do it. And then the gnat says, then what's the good of them having names? That is to say, the names you have imposed upon them, you know, horsefly, housefly, dragonfly, are arbitrary. They don't actually have any connection. And the insects themselves are perfectly... Uh, unaware that this word has been placed upon them and, and, and means them in some sense. And so then, of course, what Lewis Carroll gives us in the looking glass insects are insects which indeed correspond exactly and quite literally to the names that they've been given. So you don't have horseflies in looking glass world. You have rocking horseflies, which are actually shaped like a rocking horse. Um, you don't have dragonflies. You have snap dragonflies. You don't have, um, uh, I'm blanking on the other looking glass insects. Um, what's the, uh, oh, the, you, you, you don't have butterflies. You have bread and butterflies, um, which are actually made out of, uh, bits of bread and crust and stuff. Anyway, um, what Lewis Carroll was playing with there again is that, that gap, that inescapable gap between the names that we use language to place upon things and the things themselves. Entish, Diego, tries to get around this. Entish is, in a sense, attempting to be a pure language, in the sense that it is going to not just place an arbitrary name upon a thing that has no connection with it and its being, nor is it going to simply lump it into a category, like is a beech tree, right? Instead, Entish as a language is systematically going to, for every noun, every noun is going to be really, really long, right? And some nouns exceptionally long, because the names of things are growing all the time. Because even if you give Treebeard's name, uh, you know, his name in Entish, and you only tell the first half of Treebeard's name, well, that's not all of Treebeard, right? He's continued growing since then. Um, so he's no longer just that name anymore. Um, so yes, Diego, Entish doesn't just describe, it does attempt to unfold who and what it is, just to tell the story of that 
thing so that if you could if you could hear and understand the full name of that like an ant could get, could tell the name of that beech tree right the one that grows outside uh that, that goes outside my my living room and its name would include the entire story and history of that beech tree which makes it different from every other beech tree on planet earth but of course the joke and there is a kind of joke um is that that language is really, really inefficient. Uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't work all that well um, for conversation. Um, there's a reason why we use the shortcuts that we do use in our uh, in our language. Yes, as D- Diego says, try to say Arda in, in Entish. Exactly, exactly. Um, that, would, uh, that would take a while. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, okay, excellent question, Diego. Uh, let me uh, move on to my next uh, question from uh, from a listener uh, by uh, Facebook message this time. I've always felt that there was a dissociated sadness to Tom Bombadil. He talks about himself in the third person. He and everyone else note his power. Gandalf comments that the ring has no power over him. He is summoned by engaging all of nature to the call. Um, By water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. He brags about being uncatchable. He has great power, which he barely seems to tap into. Power that is almost, if not exactly, as old as creation yet he chooses to retreat. All the surviving ancients seem to interact with the world for good or ill, but not him, unless he is called on. Could he be bearing the guilt for not being able to have power over evil in some long past? Could he have tried to battle an evil like Morgoth, but his power was unable to touch it? Or did he choose to run away from his opportunity and now hides in his sanctuary? Um, from Larry, this is a fascinating question. Uh, I find it fascinating because that never once occurred to me in my entire life. Um, not that Tom Bombadil is never sad. Uh, he has that moment of sadness, right? He seemed to remember something sad in connection with the brooch that he finds in the, uh, in the barrow. So he is certainly capable of sadness. It's not like he is just, uh, you know, completely empty headed delight all the time. Um, but the idea that Tom Bombadil might essentially be a failure. Larry, if I'm understanding your question properly, what you're asking is, okay, does he... um, Is Tom Bombadil basically, like, placing almost some kind of penance upon himself? Tom Bombadil has withdrawn from the world because he has felt himself to be a failure. And either he's punishing himself for his failure, or he's withdrawing in recognition of his failure and his comparative impotence, that he used to at one point attempt to be a, f- a positive force for good in the world, but he got, you know, he, he lost, he failed, and so now he has withdrawn and feels that he can't do any good, so he's just going to mind his own business in his little postage stamp neighborhood, and, uh, and, uh, and that's like the tragic story of Tom Bombadil. I said, I found it fascinating because I've never asked myself that question even once in my life. Um, there's, of course, no evidence to adduce outside of what is given to us, uh, uh, really, in the text about this. That is, there's plenty of other stuff on Tom Bombadil. Um, you know, from the previous, the, you know, the earlier poem that was published, you know, back in the, back in the mid-30s. 
um, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and later republished, uh, edited and, and republished by Tolkien um, in the volume The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, the volume of poetry um, in the 60s. But, uh, and he wrote the later poem, Bombadil Goes Boating, which was in the um, the Adventures of Tom Bombadil volume as well. So we see that, you know, we, we, Tom Bombadil existed before the Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien goes back to him after the Lord of the Rings. So there is, to some extent, a sort of a wealth of Tom Bombadil stuff out there. Um, none of it suggests to me any sense of primeval failure or tragedy on Tom Bombadil's part. Um, from the first day of his introduction, Tom Bombadil is primarily happy and cheerful. Um, the way that he capers around and carries on is very similar to the way he's always capered around and carried on. I think that capering around and carrying on is something that's very close to the essence of what Tom Bombadil is. Um, so there's my answer. Tom Bombadil is capering and carrying on. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that's, that, that's my answer. So, Again, there's no direct evidence. Do I think that this theory of Tom Bombadil could be made to fit what's there? I mean, does it seem to fit with what we have? Conceivably, but I'm not really convinced by it. Um, and again, the primary reason that I'm not convinced by it is that in Tom Bombadil, other than that one sadness about the thing that he remembers, which is something outside himself, um, he, the, the brooch that makes him, that, that brings up to him a sad memory, um, uh, you know, and the boundary that also, you know, that he seems to remember something sad about. Um, those things are not things about him, exactly. I mean, again, we could say, okay, that would be, if we're going to pin it anywhere, um, uh, Larry, we'd have to pin it there, right? We'd have to say, okay, uh, Tom Bombadil, he was right there on the spot when the Dunedain were there, and when the Dunedain of Arnor were there, and... Uh, you know, Angmar was coming in, and the Witch King was growing, and civil war was beginning among the Dunedain, and Tom Bombadil tried to stop it but failed. Right? He tried to influence the course of events. That's the only historical, because of the Barrow and those comments made while they're traveling, um, about Tom's memories of those things. That's one of the only things that historically, Tom Bombadil is even brought into contact with, though we know that he was there for a long, long time before that. Still, that's the only context in which we're given to understand this. But again, I can't see it. And the reason I can't see it, the reason the reason that it does not seem to me to fit is that the number one reality about Tom Bombadil is joy, is contentment such that I find the concept of a fundamentally discontented and a fundamentally sad and tragic Tom Bombadil to be, well, unacceptable. Um, I can't accept it, that is to say. Um, I mean that quite literally. Um, it doesn't seem to fit with the primary descriptions. Now, Diego, having talked about Entish, I'm, uh, I'm being all self-conscious. I'm feeling all self-conscious now using the word description. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Jonathan says, it seems to me that Tom Bombadil is the embodiment of nature. Yes, yes. Though even that, Jonathan, is, is difficult. Um, because, of course, nature has a lot of aspects. Nature is a, a large and complicated thing, right? Um, 
Karathras is also an embodiment of nature to some extent. That is, that thing, that whatever that being is who is hurling snow at them, um, that too is nature, right? Um, but it's less friendly and less cheerful than Tom. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, but that's why, but in the end, because of the positive things, that is, the things that are act actively affirmed about Tom, the things which are persistently um, associated with Tom, his dancing, his capering, his laughter, um, his nonsense words, which might be nonsense, but might be some ancient language of delight, which we can no longer speak anymore. Those are the things which really lead me to believe um, that really make it impossible for me to believe that he actually has a tragic sort of thwarted history um, that deep down Tom Bombadil um, really, uh, um, you know, really needs a, a counselor or something. Um, and his boots are yellow. Yes, Tom, that also is, is uh, crucially important uh, about Tom Bombadil, I agree. Um, good, good. Okay. Um, Carissa, oh, wow, that's a big question. What was my opinion of the fall of Arthur? I love the fall of Arthur. Um, I agree. I think, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember. In the introduction of the fall of Arthur, Christopher said that Tolkien sent it to a colleague. Was it Arthur Pugh Chambers that he sent it to? And Chambers's response was, you must finish this. I totally agree. That is my response. Tolkien, you should have finished that. Oh, um, it's... It's fantastic. Um, Carissa, I don't, certainly don't think I can do justice to the fall of Arthur in a, you know, in a five minute comment. Um, but one thing I'll say, I think Tolkien's use of alliterative verse is more effective in the fall of Arthur than anywhere else I've read it. Um, I am ecstatic that it was released, even if only for the sake of the verse. Um, Tolkien, I've always um, I've always loved, uh, Tolkien's alliterative verse, but it is gorgeous in The Fall of Arthur. He does it really, really well. Um, I am also really interested in some of the things that he does. Um, you know, even as short as The Fall of Arthur is, um, you know, four and a half cantos, but, um, what he's already doing with that story, when you put it in the context of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the English Arthurian, you know, English and French Arthurian tradition, um, it's really fascinating, especially his depiction of Guinevere, um, is a fascinating sort of middle ground, um, middle ground, I say, between older versions of the story in which Guinevere is simply a traitor. And, and, you know, there, there are early, early English versions of the story where she simply runs off with Mordred and betrays Arthur. Um, and, uh, even one, the alliterative Mort Arthur, if I'm not misremembering, in which she goes off and bears children to Mordred. A unique element. I believe that to be the only extant version of the Arthurian story anywhere in the Middle Ages where Guinevere bears children to anybody. Um, but anyway, um, so in, in some places she's simply, she's simply the, the, the villain. In other places she's like a tragic heroine. Um, 
how Tolkien positions her, I find really fascinating. And it's really sort of, he he brings together elements of, of, of several of those things. The way that he incorporates, as he does incorporate, the Lancelot and Guinevere love story. That was my first question when I read The Fall of Arthur, Carissa. My first question was gonna, was that, is he even gonna go there? Is Lancelot gonna be a character? That wasn't a, that wasn't a given for me. Um, because Lancelot, Lancelot's very French. He is. And, uh, uh, he's just not, I mean, the, the, the original Arthurian, um, English Arthurian hero is Gawain. Gawain is the guy. And, uh, and Kay also, to a lesser extent, uh, is also the guy. Um, Lancelot is a French guy. And the whole Lancelot, Guinevere, courtly love subplot, um, of the Arthur story is a later version, is, is it sort of a later addition to the story? And I was not sure that he was going to even go there, but he does go there. He stayed closer to that, um, he, he, he stayed closer to that later, uh, um, uh, that later concept, the later concept of the, I mean, it's, the plot was much closer to the, to the later French versions than I expected to find. Um, then I found that really interesting. I know that some of those later French versions are also following earlier versions and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's more complicated, but, um, but anyway, I think it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, Carissa was asking, uh, you know, they're saying she was hoping that there'd be an academy class on the fall of Arthur at some point. That would be awesome. I'd love that actually. Um, so, uh, maybe we can do that. We'll have to, uh, uh, you know, see if that, I was actually a little surprised. We were almost finished with the voting, uh, for the first ever Mythgard Academy class following up on our fundraiser. Um, the votes are, are still, the final votes are coming in and being tallied as we speak. And, um, um, and I was surprised the fall of Arthur actually didn't get nominated in this first round. There are plenty of opportunities it could get nominated later on, but, uh, but we'll see. Okay. Um, next question. Um, I should probably decide on a theoretical ending point. <laughs> it's getting late. Uh, but I will, uh, I'll try to get a couple other questions in. Um, okay. Jordan Sunderland asks, why are the Nazgul invisible? Is it because the nine rings make them invisible? Like the one ring makes its wearer invisible? For that matter, do the Nazgul even wear the nine rings, or does Sauron keep them himself? Is it because their lifespans have been so ridiculously prolonged that they're little more than wisps of being at this point, or is it something else? Um, okay. Is it because the nine rings make them invisible like the one ring makes its wearer invisible? Um, first of all, before we answer any of these questions, um, we should first recognize that there are not very clear answers to this question. Um, and almost anything that we can go on to say about this, we have to speculate based upon things that are said about the Nazgul in the text. Um, so we always have to keep that in mind. The answer to the question is, I don't know. Now I shall commence to speculate. <laughs> We're told that the Nazgul are invisible to mortal eyes primarily because they are in the wraith world. That whole discussion of being sort of in the spirit realm, you know, this division between the physical realm and the spiritual realm and how Glorfindel, as one of the Calaquendi, exists in both places, the spiritual world and the physical world at the same time. That's why Frodo, who is 
more than half in the wraith world or spirit world um, by that time because of the influence of the Morgul wound upon him can see Glorfindel as he is on the other side as Gandalf says that whole sequence in conversation the sequence in the flight to the ford and the conversation between Gandalf and Frodo when he wakes up in Rivendell are some of the most direct comments that we get about this whole question of the spirit world and the other side the wraiths clearly live there now. They don't really have body. They are, they are called, I mean, the word undead is used of them. I don't think that that means that they are, I don't think that Tolkien was using the word undead in exactly the same way, uh, that we would, uh, use it. Um, but that is to say, I don't think that we're to imagine them being reanimated corpses or spirits of the dead, or, you know, raised and animated or, uh, uh, something like that. Exactly. Um, the rings, the great rings give long life. Gandalf says this, right? The best example that we have, Jordan, is what you point to. Um, their lifespans being ridiculously prolonged so that they're little more than wisps of being. As I'm joking about there in my subtitle, um, it's like they're becoming microscopically thin layer of butter spread over too much, way, way too much bread, right? Um, that is to say, through Gollum and through Bilbo, we see stages in the process of what the One Ring does to mortals who possess the Great Rings. They are given long life. As long as they have the ring, as long as they are the possessors of the ring, they won't die. But they don't get more life, as Gandalf tries to explain. They merely continue until life itself becomes a weariness. Um, there is a very clear sense in which the Nazgul, the original nine uh, lords and kings who took the nine rings of power from Sauron made a devil's bargain, right? They wanted power. They wanted immortality. They're offered both things by Sauron. Is he lying to them? Is he deceiving them? Is he lying to them? No. Is he deceiving them? Yes. They do get power. They do get functional immortality, right? They're not going to die of old age. They have escaped the curse of mortality that is laid upon men. Um, hooray! Good for them. Um, but they're made slaves. Slaves under the dominion of Sauron. And their existence is a weariness. They become immortal, but they become like the poster children for why death isn't actually that bad, <laughs> right? Um, if you're getting old and you're afraid of dying, well, just look at the ring rates and think, you know, actually, you know, it could be worth continuing to stretch out your existence indefinitely. Not actually a desirable state of affairs. That seems to be one way of thinking about the Nazgul. But again, um, does that mean that the nine rings of power have the same exact effect on them as the one ring of power has upon, that we see it having upon Gollum and Bilbo? I don't think we can necessarily assume that. I do think, by the way, that they're wearing their rings. Um, but, uh, um, but again, there's a different factor with them that was not there with Bilbo and with Gollum in that their rings are subordinate rings and under the power of the one. And so therefore Sauron had a more direct control over them. He was twisting them. He was controlling them. He was dominating them and their wills, um, in ways that there was not an agency that was do an external agency that was dominating Frodo and Gollum. You could say, oh, well, they were dominated by the ring. Well, yeah, kind of. Their spirits are being corrupted by the ring, but their wills are still driving the bus. It's just that their wills become warped, 
in these particular ways, so that in the end, Gollum can't resist Frodo. Gollum and Frodo, neither one of them, at the cracks of doom, neither one of their wills any longer has the strength to resist the ring, right? But again, it's not like the will of Sauron acting on them from outside in the way that the Nazgul had, so they're in a different situation. Um, but anyway, those are sort of the main things that we know about them. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway, that's, so, and it's not a very full answer, but again, we're not given very full answers. The other, one other little tidbit that I would throw into there is the comment that, um, Aragorn makes about how they can smell the blood of living creatures, desiring it and hating it. Um, and again, I think it's because they've lost their bodies. They've lost their physical life. The memory of normal life as a mortal creature, even one that's going to die, um, is tantalizing to them. Blood, real living blood they don't have anymore. Um, and they miss it. Even the things that, the bad things that kind of go along with that. Um, Good. Well, let's see. James has just asked an interesting follow-up question. <clears throat> Sauron made the One Ring 600 years after he began building Barad-dûr. So why could the foundations not be unmade until after the ring was destroyed? It's a really good question. I would say, um, I think that what is primarily going on there, the way that that is being conceived, is the power of Sauron has to be broken. When Sauron was thrown down by Isildur and the ring taken but not destroyed, um, his power, his will, remained active, even though not completely under his control. Let me back up a step. We get examples in the Silmarillion of Melkor dispersing his own will, his own power, his own being, in a sense, even, among his servants, filling them with malice and with power and dominating them. So he makes dragons. He fills orcs and trolls. He warps the orcs and the trolls, or does something with them, and fills them with rage and hatred and a love for violence. Um, and in doing so, he is dispersing himself. That is, all of those things that he makes and inspires with his own power take away a part of his own power. His own power is in them, and his own self is lessened by them. Sauron does the same thing. The difference is, Sauron poured a lot of himself into the One Ring. There's this the vague sense, and it's vague, it's never really spelled out, the vague sense that I get from it is that um, Sauron made the Ring into something like the keystone of his entire power, because he wanted an artifact that would have the power to dominate, um, to dominate others. You, th you think about it, of course, and it shouldn't be a surprise when we do think about it. The way that the ring seeks to corrupt and deceive and destroy others, well, it did it to Sauron first. That is to say, it's it's in a sense not the agency of the ring. The ring is just doing what that sort of thing does. It's doing what power and the desire to dominate others always does. Evil always ends up undoing, um, you know, oft evil will doth evil mar, uh, as, uh, as Theoden says. Um, that's what, that's how things 
happen in the world. Um, Sauron, when he, through his desire for power, through his greed, when he makes the One Ring and fills it with enough of his power to um, overcome Celebrimbor and the Elven Rings of Power, he makes himself vulnerable. He makes himself and his own power dependent upon the ring. So it isn't that the ring itself, it's not, I don't think that we can think of it in terms of, we can't think of the ring in this sense as a magical artifact like you might get in a role-playing game, right? It's not like a, you know, like a ring of power. I mean, you can find in computer games artifacts that are called rings of power, right? They're in Dungeons and Dragons from the beginning. Gary Gygax made rings of power uh, in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, the way that magic artifacts work in role-playing games, right, is that your character is this powerful. Then he gets this item which contains intrinsic power. And then when he has that, now he has this much power, right? He has the power to do all this other stuff because he's got the magic ring, which gives him the power to do these things, right? There's a way we, we, we tend, I think often when we read it, we tend to slip into that kind of power. If I had the power of the ring, then I could do this, right? And it sounds like, oh, see, it grants these abilities, right? Um, but with Sauron, that's not how it works. The power of the ring is derived from him. It's his own power. It's not, he's this powerful, and with the ring, you know, with the power of the ring, he was able to build Baradur, but if the ring is destroyed, he's not going to have the, you know, the, 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 the power to hold it up anymore, and it's just going to crumble, because it was the power of the ring that made it possible. No, it was his own power. It, it, was, it was his own power, it's his own will, that keeps the foundation stones of Baradur together. But his own power, his own will, is encapsulated in the ring. Not 100%, but mostly. The ring seems to become a kind of focal point for all of it. So when he's separated from it, most of the power that was native to him uh, is not directly accessible by him. He's lessened in himself, um, but still pretty powerful because that is still there in some sense. He still has some kind of access to it, apparently. Um... But when the ring is actually destroyed, then Sauron's power is, all of that power is destroyed with it. So Sauron no longer has the power to dominate his servants. That's why, you know, the orcs are suddenly running around in circles and killing themselves on the field of battle. Um, and why the men of Harad are all of a sudden like, eh, why are we here? I don't really want to fight these people. What's going on? I'm going to surrender if that's okay with you, right? Because they were under the dominating will of Sauron. Um, this is why Barad-dûr collapses, because the power of Sauron, which held it together, is suddenly and completely removed. Um, anyway, um, so that's, that's how I would explain it. It's, it, you have to kind of think in, in, to, to, it's always dangerous, but sometimes really hard to escape to think of it in the kind of quantifying terms that especially role-playing games have taught us to do. Um, you know, if you think about it in sort of video games terms, and, and, I'm, and I don't just mean this of gamers, even people who don't play video games often tend to think of these things in video game terms, because the way, in, in ways that I would describe as video game terms, because the, um, uh, because the way that we, we tend to want to make things, um, Video game terms are appealingly concrete to us, uh, and so we tend to sort of gravitate to thinking in those ways. Um, yeah. Um, 
Okay. Uh, just take a couple other quick questions. Daniel, you've been patient on this. Let me see if I can get back to your question. Um, Daniel says, Is it just me, or is, the, is Farmer Giles of Ham in some way a pre-parody of The Hobbit? Hmm, that's an interesting question, Daniel. Um, well, first, it would depend, of course, on exactly what you meant by a parody of The Hobbit. Um, it's, um, I mean, okay, on the one hand, you have obvious similarities, right? They're both dragon stories. You know, you, and Chrysophylax Dive certainly does seem like a, um, I mean, he's a, a much more comical dragon, obviously, than Smaug is. Um, I guess, Daniel, what I would do is I would break this down into two, two questions, or sort of two sub-questions. One, is Farmer Giles of Ham a parody? Yes, there are parodic elements in it. I think that's certainly true. Um, I would definitely call at least certain aspects of it parody. Is the parody that we can see, then my second question would be, um, are those parodic elements, are the things that we can see that, the places in the story where, where we can, where it seems like we, we can see parody in action, um, is that, um, uh, does that seem to be, what is that criticizing? What is that examining? What is that making fun of? And those, are those things similar to what we see going on in The Hobbit. Do you see how I'm breaking that down? Um, so my... Um, and my answer to that question is, no, it doesn't seem to be very closely connected to The Hobbit. That is, the one of the primary... The kind of story that seems to lie behind Farmer Giles of Ham, the kind of story that Farmer Giles of Ham is alternatively an example of and having fun at the expense of is a heroic, not even a heroic legend, but like a, a heroic fairy tale. Um, a heroic fairy tale of the Jack the Giant Killer kind. Um, there are so many elements of Farmer Giles of Ham which sound like they would quite simply be fairy tale elements, right? Um, you know, the farmer who receives a magic sword and ends up going out and, you know, enslaving the dragon with it. Um, I get, that sounds in some ways much like Jack the Giant Killer, right? I mean, that's, uh, we, we, we've heard that kind of story before. And Farmer Giles of Ham both, you know, sort of lives in that tradition, but also kind of teases that tradition. And to me, the most overtly parodic elements of the story are the depiction of the king and his knights, um, and, uh, you know, what idiots they look like. Um, and, uh, so there's some teasing of chivalric romance, you know, of, of, of knightly stories, the way that Farmer Giles becomes like the anti-knight, you know, the un-knight, um, it becomes a story which not only is not just a typical story of a knight going out and slaying a dragon, it's almost a reversal of that traditional story, which is sort of teasing that original story. But, um, uh, but it, uh, um, but the things that it seems to be teasing primarily and making fun of don't seem to me to play a large role in The Hobbit. Um, 
So I don't see the two stories, The Hobbit and Farmer Giles, interacting in that way. I mean, they are both there. It's very interesting to compare them because both of them are fairy tale stories, fundamentally, I think. Um, that's the genre I would put The Hobbit, at least the 1937 Hobbit, by which I mean not the original story before Tolkien made the changes in the late 40s. What I mean is the pre-Lord of the Rings Hobbit. Before The Hobbit became a chapter of history leading up to the end of the Third Age of Middle-earth, before all of the rest of that history got written, and The Hobbit was just the freestanding story that we got prior to, you know, up through 1953. Um, that Hobbit story, the genre I would put that in is fairy tale. It's a fairy tale. Um, and so is Farmer Giles of Ham. But they both of them stand in very different relationships with their fairy tale traditions. Both of them are interacting with those, and um, both of them are, are kind of commenting on, on them in various ways. But The Hobbit is very, it's almost never parody in that same sense. I agree with your use of the word parody, Daniel. I think that that's a perfectly fair thing to say of Farmer Giles of Ham but I wouldn't consider it fair to say of The Hobbit at any point. So to me, the primary relationship between those two stories is the sort of um, the relationship that they have with those sources, with the, um, with their, uh, the traditions that they're both taking part in. Okay. Um, this has, I, I seem to never do short episodes anymore. Let me answer two quick questions. We'll see how that goes. Um, first, uh, Blake Gorth was asking, uh, this uh, not a Tolkien writings question. He says, I was hoping that you could talk for a few minutes about pursuing studies in Tolkien at the PhD level. While there are many classes regarding Tolkien at the undergraduate and MA, thanks to Mythgard levels, at the very top there still seems to be a hostility to dealing with him as a serious author. Is the best way to interact with him at that level to pursue medieval literature or modernist literature since he doesn't fit either category perfectly? Um, Blake, it's a really good question, and I, I agree, an excellent point. Um, it is still hard. It is no longer impossible to write a PhD thesis on Tolkien at a respectable PhD program. But it is a little bit hard to get accepted to a PhD program with the declared intention of doing your PhD thesis on Tolkien. Um, you do, because there is simply hostility, as you say, there still is definitely a uh, prejudice against Tolkien. But here's I think the major change. Um, Tolkien studies is much better established now, and I do think there has been a slight, slow, and grudging recognition that it's okay to study Tolkien. But more than that, I think it, it's not a question. What has changed things most, it seems to me, is less that Tolkien has been accepted into the canon, and more that as time has gone on, um, the canon has been much more thoroughly abandoned in general. That is, it's been many years. It's, I mean, it's been decades since people started wanting to throw out the canon um, and say, oh, the canon is a bunch of dead white men, and, you know, there are all these things which are not included in the canon, and we should study all these mar these marginalized literatures. And then you've got the, 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 the movements of people studying pop culture uh, and stuff like that. Um, now, I say it's been decades since that's been happening. Um, but Tolkien people will still tell you that while on the one hand, uh, 
literary scholars have been preaching for years about how you can't just, um, you know, blindly adhere to some arbitrary definition of a canon. Those same people are still saying, yeah, but Tolkien is not a legitimate field of study. Uh, so I disbelieve in the canon, but Tolkien isn't in it, dug on it. Um, I mean, I anyway have felt like there has been a kind of self-contradiction, uh, in the reactions of, um, literary scholars. And again, it's one of the things, um, it's one of the things that I find, um, so fascinating about the reaction. Um, I mean, I have long felt that the reaction that Tolkien elicits in people, um, that is the negative reaction that Tolkien elicits in, in, in scholars and things, um, is to me a fantastically revelatory, uh, psychological thing. That is it. I believe that it reveals something really deep about sort of the psychological and spiritual makeup of the people in question. Um, uh, I've not yet fully put my, I, I'm not sure I could explain what it is or point to it exactly, but, but I think that there's something more than just a, a simple literary prejudice. Um, but anyway, um, I, um, um, so I do think that, um, the prejudice is still is there. What has made the change has been people have become, begun to be a little bit more, I guess I would say thorough in their, reactions to, um, in their reactions to the, to, in the reactions against the canon, that is, people aren't just saying it anymore, they're actually, more and more people are actually doing non-canonical things, um, not j because for many people what, what the objections to the canon really amounted to was, we should let more stuff into the canon, but not everything, right? Um, but increasingly, you know, it's, it's perfectly acceptable for somebody to go to graduate school and write a dissertation on advertising slogans from the 1930s. That would be a perfectly acceptable thesis topic. Um, you know, you're doing cultural studies. Uh, and is it literature? No, but what is literature? Lots of people don't do literature in literary, in literary studies. So since there is this changing sense of almost everything is permissible nowadays, fewer people or just say, no, Tolkien is totally unacceptable, um, you know, because, uh, I mean, we, I just met somebody who does you know, video game studies. He's a literary critic who primarily does analysis of video games. Why not? You can do that. You can be respectable, even intellectually within our field by doing that. Um, so therefore, yeah, increasingly you can do Tolkien too. But again, you have to be careful when applying to graduate school. You have to know where you're applying. Um, and, you know, and I would say, um, you know, it's tough. Is it better to disguise yourself? You know, to be like, I'm uh, totally a medievalist. 100% Middle Ages all the time. Except secretly. I'm going to do Tolkien. Once you accept me to your program, I'm going to write on Tolkien when I'm there. Probably not a good move, actually, um, because you're not going to have anybody to work with. No one's going to advise your thesis on Tolkien uh, because the medievalists are going to th are going to throw up their hands. Um, but um, um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's um, I don't think that that's a particularly good move. Um, but. um. Is it possible to find places? Yeah, I, my own advice would be to talk to faculty at the schools that you're thinking of applying. Is there somebody there who would be willing to work on it? You know, who would be willing to work with you to go in and say, 
you know, you can't just say, I want to study Tolkien and, and only Tolkien. I'm just going to read Tolkien and that's it. Okay. I mean, you have to, you have to be able to say, you know, because you're, you're the, per, your advisor that you're going to be working with is going to have a field, right? Which is probably not going to be Tolkien studies. Um, so you need to be able to, you know, like say, Hey, Mr. Um, 20th century pop culture specialist. Um, I want to study Tolkien and fantasy literature. Um, this, you know, that's my angle. This is my, you know, this is, this is, this is what I'm interested in. Maybe he or she will say fine. Um, you know, modernists, modernists are hard nuts to crack. Uh, modernists, I find modernists, uh, to be the most diehard anti-Tolkienists in the academy, at least in my own experience. And it may be, I've been unlucky, but, um, but that's certainly been my own experience. I think they're predisposed to this prejudice. But um, anyway, um, so it is, it is definitely, the world is definitely moving. You can now, um, you can now find places, I think, that will let you do a thesis on Tolkien. You might even be able to get a job afterwards, though that's less definite. Um, but um, certainly you're going to need a broader field in which to teach so that when you're writing job applications later on, you know, when you're sending cover letters to places, you're not just being like, do you have a job opening for a Tolkien guy? Is that uh, what your department is looking for? Your department said, we have four members and we want to hire a fifth member. And what we really need is somebody who just says Tolkien all the time. You're not going to find many schools like that. So uh, you certainly need to have a broader field. Um, and therefore, for yourself, you need to think of ways that you can make Tolkien fit into that. You know, find some version of a larger field, which for you does include Tolkien, and uh, and that'll help. So anyway, um, the last topic I wanted to hit, the very last one, Kay um, had an, a related question on about graduate studies. Um uh, for someone considering a Mythgard MA degree, can you speak to the topic of studying Tolkien full-time? Is anything lost when you immerse yourself professionally in Middle-earth? How does your relationship with it now compare to your first encounters? You know, Kay, I think that that varies more by the person than anything else. Um, if you... I certainly can imagine somebody who basically has their, you know, love and passion and interest in something really, um, stifled by going pro in it, you know, when it becomes your day job, when you're like, ah, oh, I got to go into the office today and slog my way through, you know, uh, some, you know, Silmarillion today, I can imagine that there are some people who might begin to find it a drudgery because now there are things that you, you know, now you have to, you, you have to be talking about it all the time and maybe you're not interested in, you know, addressing the same questions about the same text again and again and again. But, you know, I mean, there are discontented people in every field, and literary studies is is the same as any other in that way. But, by and large, I have found it unusual in any field. Most people, well, let me back up. Most people who go into a field of study and become teachers in that field if they do it because they love it, if they are drawn to this because they are excited about it and really want to talk about it and really want to teach about it, um, if that is their passion, you know, over a long career, sometimes, you know, you can burn out, but, um, but rarely 
you know, most of the people that I knew who had that passion going into it find that teaching it and living in it um, only, only, you know, uh, expands it, you know, only gives you the opportunity to... St- I mean, I have learned so much, Kay, over the last few years. Um, nothing I've ever done. Um, I used to think I knew Tolkien pretty well. If you'd asked me, on the day I launched my website, if I thought I knew Tolkien pretty well, I'd have said yes. I have learned so much about Tolkien ever since I did that, um, as I have immersed myself more and more um, uh, in this. And uh, and really, th- and, and goodness, I've learned every single Mythgard class I have taught um, in our master's degree program. I have learned so much uh, in every single class I've taught. Um, and that's been exhilarating. It's been really fun. It's been really great. Um, sometimes people go into the field for the wrong reasons. Um, uh, that's again, also true in every job. Um, and for those people, um, you know, there have been, I mean, sometimes I've heard people complain about teaching. This is especially true in grad school. There were some people in grad school who didn't really want to be teachers. You know, they, they kind of, they were interested intellectually in literature. And so they, they really wanted to just be scholars and have somebody support them in teaching was sort of a necessary evil that they had to do to pay the bills. And, um, they didn't really respect their students and, and, uh, and, and they weren't, they didn't really get much out of the teaching experience. And I was felt really sad for those people because, um, I mean, maybe they can find the perfect job that they want and, and, you know, can just go off and write books and more or less ignore students. Um, but there aren't very many jobs like that. And I doubt that many of those people ended up having very happy and satisfying careers. Again, it wasn't a majority by any sense, but there are some people who were like that already in grad school. And for those people, I don't think, you know, um, I don't know. I can't even, their experience is so different from mine that I'm not sure I can even speak to it. But, um, I find that people who go into it because they love it and they want to learn more, um, and they want to, um, you know, it's like when you, when you immerse yourself in it, reading and reading it again, and you, you begin to get a taste for how much more you see and how much more you appreciate when you, when you kind of dip yourself in some, right? Um, that, you know, that, that the sort of a logical thought to think, if I really jumped into this, you know, if I made this my career, if my full-time job became studying Tolkien, that would be ten times as much fun. It is, actually. It, it is. <laughs> ten times as much fun. Uh, that's totally true. <laughs> um, so, you know, at least that's certainly been my own experience. Um, so, so anyway, I definitely... Um, now you do have to be practical. I mean, there aren't really very many jobs that will actually support you financially doing this. Um, and, uh, uh, and I would add, by the way, including mine, (laughs) um, I'm not exactly raking in piles of money, uh, doing the Tolkien professor gig, uh, to this point. Um, I've been having a lot of fun and, uh, especially Mythgard and Signum University have been a, um, uh, an incredibly rewarding undertaking. And, you know, I believe there is much more of that to come. And someday I believe I'll even earn an honest salary by doing it. Um, but, uh, certainly I don't think I'd have ever just been able to go pro as the Tolkien professor with my podcast and stuff, even with my books. So, um, uh, you know, Again, one 
when we're talking about actual career choices and stuff, one does have to recognize there are certain pragmatic issues in, at, in, in, in play. And goodness knows, you certainly don't get a PhD um, for pragmatic reasons. Um, it's not a very practical career to pursue, and it's less so now than ever before. Um, but, um, um, though I will say, uh, it's one of the things that is one of my little private hopes for Mythgard, actually, for our Mythgard master's degree program, um, is there is one place that I think that graduates of the Mythgard Institute might have a reasonable chance of earning at least some small employment later on, and that is at the Mythgard Institute. <laughs> um, we are always going to have a need uh, for enthusiastic and talented uh, Tolkien people. So um, that's uh, something that uh, I certainly hope would come out of it. As Carissa says, uh, what is money when there is truth and duty to pursue? To pursue? I agree, Carissa. Um, yeah, it's uh, not uh, not for the big paycheck that uh, I've gone into this life, <laughs> fortunately. <laughs> but anyway, um, well, thanks everybody for joining me. I should let you go even after my late start. It's been, I think, over two hours now, so I should uh, I should let you go. But uh, thanks, everyone, uh, who joined me live and for your questions and to those who sent in questions. Um, so I do, uh, I, I do hope that uh, I got to answer at least some of your questions. Um, I hope to be able to carve out a time to do this, if not frequently, at least with more regularity than I have done it, so we can, we can check in on this occasionally. We will be doing the Mythgard Academy classes again, for those of you uh, who don't know what that is. It's this new series of open access uh, little mini courses, kind of like the Silmarillion Seminar, reading through books together. Um, the people who supported our Indiegogo campaign, our fundraising campaign last month, um, are going to be, are, have already been electing the, I don't, have any okay? I have some say, um, but I don't have any voting power in 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 what the what the class is. I am myself. I'm still waiting to see what we're teaching next. Well, you know what 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 book we're going to talk about together. Um, so uh, uh, so anyway, we will we will see um, we'll see uh, where things go. But anyway, I'm very much looking forward to that. So we'll have some uh, uh, some really fun classes on some really excellent books. The books that have been nominated. Uh, by our Council of the Wise has been uh, uh, have, have been a really great list of books. It should be really fun. So I hope you guys will keep your eyes out for the Mythgard Academy class. Hope you can join me for those, and uh, and uh, and we should be back with another uh, question and answer time at some point soon. So thanks for joining me, everybody. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>